Please open in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We begin by, uh, we'll begin by reading 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and then also Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Listen to God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now turn over a few pages in your Bible to Titus chapter 1. It's on page 998 of the Bibles provided. The Apostle Paul writes similar words to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So this, uh, in this series we're in, we're using these qualifications that Paul lays out for an elder as a, a kind of shorthand description of what a mature Christian is. And this morning, we're going to specifically zero in on this qualification that an overseer or an elder must be self-controlled. We'll be looking at both that explicit call to be self-controlled, but also there are these other qualifications that are kind of revolving around self-control. So a man must not be a drunkard or quick-tempered. He must not be violent, but gentle. He must be disciplined, as the end of Titus 1.8 says. So there, there are several things in here that speak to an elder's self-control and I think speak to a mature Christian's self-control. So that's what we're going to try to expound on this morning. What does it mean to be self-controlled? Now we could say that self-control is kind of a, a traditional middle-class virtue, right? It's something that hard-working parents want to pass on to their kids. They tell them, you know, if you, if you live a, a hard-working life and you're self-controlled with your, your spending habits, you're going to be able to provide well for your family. That's kind of a thing that most of us are probably familiar with. Maybe that was passed on to us. But we have to say that that, that kind of spirit isn't necessarily the spirit of our current age. These traditional middle-class values have fallen on some hard times and so more and more in our culture, we instinctively feel like we should jettison self-control, that we should be free to do whatever we want, whatever feels right. 
So from some corners of our culture, we're getting this loud message proclaimed with almost a religious zeal that the self should never be controlled. Right? To, to seek to control or negate what yourself wants is almost a form of self-harm. And we see this especially right now in the area of our sexuality. Nothing should be repressed there. But I think we see that even among our neighbors who might idolize the self in this way, self-control is unavoidable. So the most progressive LGBTQ activists who might say, don't control your sexual preferences, will still discipline themselves in one area of life so they can get the job they want or so that they can achieve in their favorite sport. We all recognize, whether you're more of that traditional middle-class bent or the more progressive bent, that achievement requires self-discipline. You have to say no to some things you want and to pursue other goods, right? Even the video gamer who spends all day in his chair, maybe he's saying no to bathroom breaks and meals because he wants to finish the level, right? So the question behind self-control is really this. What is self-control for? What are you denying yourself to achieve? And who gets to decide the goal of our lives? Again, in a secular culture, the answer is that the self determines the self. We all act as if we're self-creating and self-defining. And so each of us gets to define our own purpose. Again, in some places, that definition of your own purpose can look very sort of traditional and middle class. In some cases, though, it looks like the sexual revolution of the 1960s or our, our current revolution around gender and sexuality. But in our secular world, there seems to be a belief in an inalienable right for each individual self to set their own journey and also to be protected from the criticism of anyone else. Right? No one has the right to criticize someone else's choices and self-expression. Well, that's maybe the world's view of self-control, but what about the Christian view of self-control? When we talk about Christians needing to be self-controlled, are we just talking about something that's natural to humans that Christians just kind of put a Christian spin on? Are Christians just modern people like everyone else defining ourselves, but we've just chosen to define ourselves in a way that complies with, with what Christianity teaches? Well, this morning, as we continue to unpack Scripture's teaching about what makes a mature Christian, like I said, we're using these qualifications and trying to understand what does Paul mean when he calls elders and really all Christians to self-control? Why does this play such a major role in what Paul conceives of as a mature Christian, both for others and for his own life, as we'll see? Why is this a Christian virtue? That's how we're going to start this morning, is trying to, to lay that groundwork. Why is this something particularly Christian? And why is this not just sort of aping what the world does? How do we understand the, the Christian nature of Christian self-control? And then from there, we'll go on and look at how we are to grow in self-control. Those are our two big points. Why is self-control a Christian virtue? And how are we to grow in self-control? To get back to that kind of story or that thread we were going through in the introduction... 
if self-control is just a thing people naturally do, why is it so important for Christians? Now, on the one hand, it's enough just to say, well, God commands it, right? He says, be self-controlled. Not only, not only here in the qualifications for elders, but in the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's one of the, the fruit that God's Spirit indwelling a Christian is supposed to produce, self-control. But we'll be helped to grow in self-control if we can see how it's different for a Christian than for an unbeliever. And to see how self-control grows out of our faith in the gospel. One reason why Christian self-control is different is that the scripture's definition of the self is different. The scripture's idea of the self is opposed to the modern idea of the self. So God's word, if we're going to believe it and submit to it, it forces us to deny the secular idea that we each create ourselves and define ourselves. So if we're to look at where Scripture's teaching on the self begins, we have to look to the very beginning of the Bible, God's creative act. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We read here that each person, male and female, is stamped with God's image. That means a God-given dignity and a God-given capacity to know God and worship God. So the scriptural definition of the self begins by saying we're not self-created and we're not self-ruled people. All people, whether they acknowledge it or not, are created by God to live in this world under God's rule and worshiping God. God defines how we're to live. God is the one who gets to set the agenda, the purpose of what it means to be a human being. So the meaning and purpose of our lives is not something that each of us gets to invent out of thin air. God, our maker, defines who we are and the purpose for which we live our lives. This is really crystal clear in Scripture. There's no debating it. But I think what, what, what we miss is how much we have in all imbibed the culture's idea that we create ourselves, that we all live for our own self-fulfillment. So no matter how kind of rigid and orthodox you are, this is something that we need to routinely remember. God defines me. God made me. I didn't make myself. I don't get to define myself. So the scripture begins there. God made us. And then the scripture tells us that all people have sinned. So when you think of yourself, when a Christian thinks of himself or herself, a Christian doesn't see innocence or purity. Many worldly philosophies regard the the natural self as kind of being pure in this state of nature. And it only gets corrupted when, when these institutions like family or civil society start kind of getting their hands on the self. Then the, then the self gets perverted by these religious rituals or rules that are imposed from the outside. But that's not a Christian view of the self. A Christian knows that our selves are disordered selves. We've turned away from the God who created us, the one we were made to worship, the one we were made to love. So in the words of Romans 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, verse 5, we are all dead in our trespasses. 
ourselves, our sinful selves, and under God's judgment. Now, by God's grace, our sin doesn't destroy completely or eradicate the image of God in us, but our sin does distort it. Because of sin, we are distorted selves, not the selves we are created to be. I think it's helpful to understand that our our sinful self is fundamentally committed to self-indulgence. That may sound too harsh, right? We we might know some unbelievers who seem very disciplined. They seem to live very very self-controlled lives. But again, remember how we started. We said that a a worldly conception of self-discipline can be look look very traditional and maybe commendable from the outside. But we have to ask, what is that self-discipline serving? I think what we'll find in in the case of every unbeliever is that self-discipline is put to use to serve the self, to serve some other selfish ambition. So we're living to please ourselves and glorify ourselves rather than to please and glorify God. Sometimes this self-indulgence is more clear. Again, those examples we talked about. Maybe we could imagine someone who works really, really hard. They're very disciplined at work. But they do so in order to to spend lavishly and to surround themselves with ostentatious luxuries, right? Self-discipline in the service of, of materialism. Or they could do the same thing in service of power. They work really hard to gain more and more influence and power. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, in verses 22 and 23, that certain kinds of self-discipline or self-denial can come with a religious facade as we legalistically deny ourselves certain things. So in 2.23 of Colossians, Paul says, these indeed, these kinds of self-denial, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Someone can go through all kinds of religious denials. They can live a life of poverty and yet really be taking no steps towards true Christian self-control or self-discipline. We have to acknowledge, as sinful human beings, we are masters of of using self-control for the sake of our own self-indulgence. This is why we deserve judgment from God's hand. We've used good gifts. These capacities for self-control are good things. We've used them for ourselves instead of for the worship of God. So as we go through this message today, I hope you continually ask, for what purpose do I use my self-control? What goals does my self-discipline serve? The good news of the gospel is that God offers forgiveness to sinners like us who abuse our self-control. We see in Jesus one who is the complete opposite of a selfish person or a self-indulgent person. The word tells us, Jesus himself tells us, he did not come to be served, but to serve. He took on the form of a servant in dying on the cross. On the cross, Jesus serves us by taking the wrath that we deserve. He takes the penalty that our self-indulgence deserves on himself. He poured himself out in death 
so that self-indulgent sinners who trust in Christ can receive forgiveness from him. Though we were dead in our sins, as we've already saw from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, God, by his grace, has made us alive together with Christ and has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So a Christian understanding of the self sees the self first as created by God, sees the self as sinning and under God's judgment, but then redeemed by God. We were once dead, but now we're alive because of God's grace and power. We can get a a really quick summary of the Christian view of self with the, the first line of answer number one in the Heidelberg Catechism. I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is a Christian understanding of the self. Finally, the Christian self understands that we are not isolated selves. We are saved by God to be part of Christ's church, the body of Christ. So we're saved by God to display God's glory in relationships with other Christians. So the Christian self believes Jesus' words when he tells us that to, to lose our lives for his sake in the gospel is to save it. The Christian self doesn't seek its fulfillment in its, its own self-created self-expression. The Christian self knows that fulfillment is found in sacrificial love to Christ's body, the church. For the glory of Christ's name. That's a whirlwind tour through the Christian view of the self. But it's important that we begin there because of how much confusion there is in our world about who we are. We need to set that as our baseline. Another way to say this is if we're going to talk about self-control, we we need to know the, the self that Christ commands us to control. And we see that the Christian self is fundamentally a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so for living consistently with the gospel, we have to understand who we are. And we see Paul arguing in this way in many of his letters, but one place we especially see it is in Romans chapter 6. There he says that by faith in Christ's work, this is Romans 6 verse 4, we have been buried with Christ by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. So the Christian understands himself or herself to be one who's been buried with Christ by baptism. Baptism, I think, there's a stand-in for for faith in Christ. By faith in Christ, we understand ourselves to be crucified with him. So he he works out the implications that we're dead to sin. That means we're freed to the enslaving power of sin. You might say that Paul is arguing that for Christian sanctification, we must have a right self-conception. So he says in Romans 6, 11, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's how you must conceive of yourself, see yourself dead to sin and alive to God. In Romans 6, 13, Paul says that because we have been brought from death to life, We should not let sin reign in our bodies. So because we belong to Christ, we no longer obey sin's passions. As new creatures in Christ, we seek to control ourselves. 
So what I'm trying to prove to you here is that the gospel is the root of self-control. Self-control, Christian self-control, is not grounded in willpower or a desire to be successful. Christian self-control is grounded in the change that the gospel produces in us. Self-control in a scriptural sense is the way to live consistently with the reality that we are dead to sin and alive to God. So all of this tells us that Christians, to be a Christian, is to strive to live a self-controlled life. A pastor in Atlanta named Aaron Minikoff defines self-control like this. Self-control is the resistance of temptation and the refusal to give indwelling sin the upper hand. Resisting temptation and refusing to give sin the upper hand. You can see from that definition what the opposite of self-control would be. It's to give in to sin. It's to make peace with it. For a Christian to abandon self-control would be to give up on becoming more like Jesus. We need to recognize that to give up on self-control is dangerously close to giving up on the Christian faith altogether. So this leads us to three follow-up implications about self-control. These will be short. First, a Christian exercises self-control not for the sake of self-indulgence. Instead, Christian self-control is self-control in the service of God. So we don't discipline ourselves according to a Christian way of life in order so that we can get something out of God in another area of life. So God, I'll submit to you here, so you give me this here. That's not Christian self-control. Christian self-control is for the sake of honoring and pleasing the Lord. This has been a consistent theme in our sermons on maturity. Mature Christians simply seek to honor the Lord in all of life. Mature Christians are growing in that desire every day to honor the Lord more. So that's implication number one. Christian self-control is oriented to pleasing God. Implication number two is that self-control is a gift of God. It's a grace that God works in our lives. So once again, remember that self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. So Christian self-control doesn't derive from our own willpower but it's a fruit of Christ's work in our lives. By ourselves, apart from Christ's power, we are powerless to produce the kind of self-control that God commands. It must be something God works in us. This helps us to know that if we want to be self-controlled, if we want to grow in self-control, we must pray to God and ask him to grant us this fruit of the Spirit. But, Saying that self-control is a gift of God can give us the wrong idea about it. It may, help, may, it may lead us to think that self-control requires no effort from us. And that's the third implication for self-control. Self-control requires our work. It is the gift of God, and it requires our work. It is not an effortless part on the, it's not effortless on the part of the Christian. As if we trust Jesus and just poof, magically, we are perfectly self-controlled and we have no temptations to excess, no weaknesses, no indulgences. As that same pastor put it, self-control is a gift, but it is also a command. 
So Paul commands Christians in Colossians 3, verse 5, to put to death what is earthly in you. And in Romans 8, 13, he says that it is by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death. That's an an alarming image, right? That's what self-control is like. Consider Paul's words from the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You might go ahead and turn there a few pages back. This is on page 957 of the Bibles provided. Here Paul is writing about how Christians use their freedom and how he himself could use his freedom. Specifically, though, he's writing about how he's chosen not to use some of the freedoms and rights that are his. And he says he's made this choice to not use these freedoms and rights for the sake of removing obstacles to gospel ministry. He does all this because he wants to win people to Christ. So what I want you to see is Paul is is exercising a form of self-control here. Self-control to win some to Christ, as he says in verse 19. But now listen to how he describes this this life of, of saying no to yourself beginning in verses 24 through 27. Or the, that's, that's the passage we're going to read now. So chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul compares being self-controlled to denying yourself certain freedoms as, as like an athlete running. And it seems to be implied this runner's running hard. Runners run to win the race, right? We have a bunch of runners in the room. Turner was just telling me that running is painful by nature. Running is hard work. Competing is hard. It involves all kinds of self-denial. And Paul says that's a a good picture of what pursuing Christian self-control is like. It's worth it. He's doing this. He's disciplining himself. He's putting in this hard work because he knows that there's an imperishable reward awaiting those who live this way. But he acknowledges it's hard. We see similar images in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul also uses this athlete image again, but he also adds to it a picture of a soldier as one under control. A soldier who avoids civilian entanglements because he's working hard for the goal. He also shows a picture of a farmer here, a farmer who works hard. Christian self-control is hard work, but it's not work that we do in our own power. We pursue self-control by the Holy Spirit's power and by the sweat of hard work for the sake of God's glory. We work as those carried along by the Spirit. So just to sum up this first point, we started with this Christian understanding of the self. We are created by God and redeemed by Christ. And then we tried to show how Christian self-control is grounded in this Christian self-conception. We understand ourselves to be those who have died with Christ and are alive to God in him. And because of this, we seek to submit to Christ 
in how we control our passions and not to be ruled by our passions. And then we've seen how self-control is a, a gift that God works in the lives of his people as they work hard to put sin to death. Self-control is that refusal to give sin the upper hand. Now I hope that through this summary you've been convinced that self-control is not optional for the Christian. We can say clearly, self-control is not the gospel. But if you claim to believe the gospel, and if you have no regard for self-control, you've not understood fully the gospel and what it's supposed to do in your life. Self-control is a primary way that redeemed people respond to the presence of sin in their lives. We seek to control it and turn away from it. Now, if we've been convinced that we have to pursue self-control because of who Christ made us to be, we have to ask, well, how do I do this? How do I pursue growing in self-control? How do I pursue Christian maturity in this way? Well, the first way to grow is just to admit that you need to grow, that you need to grow in the area of self-control. I think we have a lot of folks here who may think of themselves as, as very disciplined people and therefore may think, well, this sermon is just really not for me. I don't have any, any areas where I'm given to excess. You know, maybe you've already got that Benjamin Franklin kind of self-control where you're early to bed and early to rise and you're healthy, wealthy, and wise. So you just think this isn't an issue for you. But you need to see that self-control as a Christian is about fighting sin in every area of our lives. We, we might be helped just to consider the specific examples Paul gives just in the qualifications for elders. He says that an elder or a mature Christian, as we're talking about it, must not be a drunkard, must not be violent, but instead be gentle must not be quick-tempered. As I said at the end of Titus 1.8, he uses the word disciplined, which seems to imply chastity, sexual purity. So maybe you don't need to be that much more disciplined in your daily habits of you know, waking early and exercising and managing your money. But you know yourself to be quick to speak a harsh word to your spouse or your children. You know that gentleness is lacking. Maybe your diet and exercise routine are great, but you feel like every so often you, you earn the right to relax by getting drunk. Maybe you've disciplined your body to run five miles a day, but when it comes to sexual purity, you're undisciplined. And your eyes and your thoughts wander into places that defile you. Paul is telling us that if we want to grow into maturity, into Christ-likeness, we can't be content with partial self-control. So we, we can't justify our sin by saying, you know, I, I cut loose in that area, but in this area I'm really disciplined, and so kind of on average, I'm doing pretty well. We need to see that that is the path to spiritual suicide. Whenever we justify indulging our flesh, we're taking practice runs at apostasy. We're paving the way that leads to abandoning Jesus. So let this message be an occasion to, to look at all of your life and ask, where is self-control lacking? Where am I indulging in, in sinful anger or mockery? 
Where am I tempted just to, to scroll endlessly on my phone instead of stopping to pray? Where am I uncontrolled with food or drink? Just to help you, if you're trying to furiously write down all these questions, I tried to put as many of them as are included here on the, the paper in the back that's got the children's listening guide on one side, and there's a lot of questions for reflection on the other side. One way I think we can all grow in identifying areas where we need to grow in self-control is, is just using the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, verse 22. So we can ask, am I loving or am I serving myself? Am I gentle or am I indulging in harshness? Am I joyful or am I indulging in bitterness? Am I patient or am I indulging my desire to have everything I want when I want it? Am I kind or am I indulging in meanness? Am I faithful in my relationships to keep my promises? Or am I chasing every passing whim? You see how many areas our, our need for self-control touches? To begin growing in self-control, I think we just have to admit all the ways we need to grow. We need to confess the ways we're lacking self-control. Are you willing to do that? A godly brother or sister may be able to help you identify areas of your life that are lacking in self-control. If you're married to a godly spouse, they might be able to identify those areas for you. Since you've been raised with Christ, are you ready to put on self-control in all these areas? Are you ready to seek help in exercising self-control? That's how we begin to grow in self-control, admitting our need to grow. In his book, Character Matters, Pastor Aaron Minikoff names several other ways we can grow in self-control. He says that first we grow in self-control by remembering the cross. But once we are convict, convinced of the ways we need to grow and convicted of our sin, we need to remember that Christ died for our sin. Now this does two things, at least. It, on the one hand, it shows us the seriousness and the grievous nature of our failures of self-control. Right? Our quick tempers, our drunkenness, our harshness, those things require Christ's death to pay their price. For your sin to be forgiven, the Son of God had to take on flesh and die. It's costly and grievous. We should hate these sins that so easily entangle us. Looking at the cross can help you grow in your hatred of sin. But we should also look to the cross and rejoice that Jesus willingly paid the price of our sin. Pastor Minikoff says that without a mind fixed on Christ, your self-control will be little more than self-help and it won't last. But with our eyes set on Christ, with our hearts full of the joy of his forgiveness, we can truly begin to put sin to death. So are you remembering the cross? When we think about a daily quiet time, are you making a part of that quiet time, not just a perfunctory reading, but deliberately meditating on the cross of Christ. If you're having trouble doing that, 
Romans chapter 6 may be just a, a good place for you to live in your quiet times for a while. It'll draw your eyes to the Christ and what he did for you and who you are in him. So we can't grow in self-control without remembering the gospel, without remembering the cross. Another way we can grow in self-control is by embracing the fight. As I've had the opportunity to go through the membership class material two times in the last few weeks, first with, with Gemma and then with Tom, one of the things that stood out to me in what we're calling each other to do as church members is we're calling each other to a basic commitment to keep growing. Church membership and following Jesus is a, is a commitment to sanctification. It's a commitment against complacency. It's a commitment to fight. And we have to remember, again, fighting sin is not easy. We're going to be tempted again and again to make peace with certain sins. Or we're tempted to, to think we cannot grow. We, we just have to give up. We've tried in this area and it's just not happening. But remember that Paul uses the expression put to death to describe our fight against sin. For, for people like us with indwelling sin, sanctification feels like crucifixion as we daily die to our self-indulgence. To say no to our harsh anger, to say no to our lust, to say no to our discontentment, to say no to our materialism, to say no to that favorite meal that we've been idolizing. All these things are painful. Are you ready for that painful battle? Pastor Minnikoff says that a crucial part of this fight for self-control is to bring the fiercest battle into the light. This is hard, isn't it? Because we're embarrassed to admit the ways we indulge ourselves. We would rather fight privately. But that habitual private sin, the one that you most often fall back into, that's the one that you need to share with a godly brother or sister in Christ. And we're not calling you to share as a way to shame yourselves. We're calling you to share as a way to, to get help, to have prayer, to help you in naming that sin out loud and say, this, this is evil. And I've been continually returning to it. Now Christ has given the church for our edification, our building up, our encouragement. So are you taking advantage of this gift that Christ has given you? These brothers and sisters around you. Are you seeking their, their help as you put to death your sin? Are you just trying to hide it and take care of it on your own? Sometimes one of the most gracious things the Lord does is he he lets us get caught in our sin. He brings it out to the light, whether we wanted him to or not. And by this, we have to fight it in a more public way. For those of you who are in Christian marriages, are you enlisting your spouse in your fight for self-control? Again, wherever the battle for self-control is most intense in your life, ask the Lord to, to help you share it with another brother or sister who can help you, who can join you in the battle in fighting that sin and seeing the way Christ forgives you of that sin. Pastor Minnikoff adds one more way to grow in self-control. 
He says that we should plead with the Spirit. He says you need God's help to hate your sin, to mourn its presence in your life, and to repent of its grip, and to equip you to live without it. We need God's help to equip us to live without the sin that we love. I hope you've been able to hear, as, we, as we've talked about these ways to grow in self-control, they remind us that self-control is both a gift and a command, right? We remember the cross, and we fight, and we pray for God's help. Do you know that God delights to answer your cries for help? So don't believe the lie that the Lord is somehow against you in your fight for self-control. You know, that he's just kind of sitting over on the sidelines with his arms crossed, watching to see how you do. No, the Lord has saved you, and he's equipped you for every good work. So don't stop crying out to him. Don't stop praying. Keep crying out. Ask the Lord for help. There's one more thing I would add to Pastor Minikoff's list of ways we can grow. Rejoice in using your self-control to serve others. Again, when Paul describes his own example of self-control in 1 Corinthians 9, we looked at it a second ago, he says that he denied himself his rights because he wants to win people to Christ. And then when Paul commands Timothy with all those images, the images of the soldier and the athlete of the farmer, he does that in the context of, of telling Timothy to entrust to faithful men what Paul has taught Timothy so that those faithful men would teach others also. Paul instructs Timothy to use his self-control for the building up of more gospel ministers. So the Christian's self-denial is not for its own sake. It's for the honor of Christ and the good of others. Again, Christ teaches us that we find true joy in laying down our lives for Christ's sake and the gospel. So how might you use self-control to encourage others in the gospel? How might you use your self-control to help others grow in their knowledge of Christ? The the church directory may be an area where you can use self-control, deny yourself each day to set aside time to pray for the members of the church, right? That's a simple way that we can use self-control to encourage and help others in their growth as we pray for them. So self-control not only involves fighting against our own sin, but it also involves sometimes denying our rights and our freedoms because we want to better communicate the gospel and because we don't want to be a stumbling block to brothers and sisters as they pursue Christ. I wonder if perhaps we struggle in our fight for self-control because we've made it all about us, in our own personal project of a spiritual improvement. Perhaps we, we struggle because we, we lack a vision for how God can use your self-control for the good of others. Or perhaps we are weak in evangelism and in discipling others because we've not fought for self-control. Because we have overindulged without repentance. So do you understand your own self-control to not be about only your own life, but about the lives of others too? So pursue self-control by God's grace 
for the good of others. God's word about self-control leaves none of us untouched, right? This is a convicting thing to meditate on. It's been convicting for me. But the conviction of sin that God brings is for our growth. This sermon is not for you to wallow away in shame and to kind of walk out of here not meeting the eye of another. It's for your growth. It's for your maturity in Christ. Remember those words from Colossians 1 we've cited a few times in previous sermons. The goal of Paul's ministry was to present everyone mature in Christ. Indeed, in that very passage, Paul describes his own labor as as hard work. He labors with hard work by God's power to present everyone mature in Christ. So even there, he's an example to us of self-control for the good of others. Mature Christians should be marked by that same kind of self-control that Paul had. So we should see in the mature the ways in which they're, they're fighting with God's power to deny themselves for the good of others and the glory of God. When we call men to serve as elders, we should examine their lives to look for evidence of that kind of self-control. And if you're here and you desire to be an elder, which is a good thing to desire, a good question to ask yourself is how are you putting on self-control for the good of Christ's church and the glory of God? That's one hallmark of maturity. But another hallmark of mature Christians is that they are always maturing. Maturity is not a a level that we achieve, right? It's It's a commitment to this process of growth. The mature are continually seeking to grow. I'm encouraged when I talk to the people in our church who've been following Christ a long time of how they keep wanting to grow in Christ. That's such an encouragement. So no matter where you are in maturity with self-control, all of us can seek to put on this kind of maturity today, to, to commit to growing. Are you seeking to grow? Are you seeking to grow and putting on more self-control? Are you, or are you indulging in complacency? Are you content with that kind of natural, self-willed self-control, that, that self-control that's serving yourself in some other way? The kind of self-control that that even our unbelieving neighbors who are far away from God have? Or are you seeking, with God's help, more and more, every day, to put on the fruit of the Spirit? To put it bluntly, are you a Christian? Do you consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus? If so, then join the battle for self-control. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help and we pray for a, a work of your spirit in all of our lives that we would be a congregation marked by putting on self-control. We pray that we would put away harshness and mockery, that we would put away anger and hatred and meanness, that we'd put away impatience, that we'd put on love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who desires our maturity. And you've not left us alone to will our way to these virtues, but that in Christ Jesus, you have equipped us for every good work. And so help us to fight with faith. In Jesus' name, amen.